continues the series on uh, being disciples of a spirit-filled Messiah. And we find quite a number of things happening in today's text. How many of us have been in situations where something needed to be done, we've done everything we could, nothing works? How many of us have been in that kind of situations? I, I see a number of hands. Huh? The disciples found themselves exactly in this kind of a situation with the boy who had an evil spirit. If we read, if, if we remember the text from the beginning of chapter 9, some weeks before they had been sent out by Jesus, the 12 of them, two by two, and they were told to, Jesus gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Um, the Bible doesn't, Luke doesn't record anything different for us that they encountered difficulties and so on. And so we can assume quite safely that all went according to what Jesus assigned them to do. And now they were confronted with a situation where they had to drive out a demon, but nothing they did seem to work. This incident with the boy took place after some days after Peter had confessed before everyone in that little group that Jesus is the Christ of God or God's Messiah. This confession in all three Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, forms what we call the pivot point in Jesus' ministry. After this confession, before that, Jesus had been very actively engaged in ministry in Galilee, preaching to the crowds, and he had just fed 5,000 people and so on. But after this point, Jesus would no longer be going about as openly as before to teach the crowds and so on. And like we heard in the text, he set his face resolutely towards Jerusalem. Although he didn't go in a direct route, he... Uh, he nevertheless was heading towards Jerusalem. And in that journey towards Jerusalem, he would take the time to concentrate on teaching his disciples. He would take the time to concentrate on preparing his disciples for Jerusalem and all that would happen in Jerusalem. At the same time, Jesus was also preparing them for a time when he would have to return to the Father and they themselves would have to take the mission of sharing the gospel to the world, making disciples wherever they went. But right now, in this situation, with all the noise and clamour, the boys still being possessed, the disciples needed Jesus. They knew that 
and maybe they were getting a little bit desperate because Jesus was nowhere in sight. And Jesus and the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, come down from the mountain right into chaos. The other nine disciples just could not drive the evil spirit from the boy. And when Jesus saw that, when Jesus was confronted to that, with that, his, his response seemed more out of frustration than anything else. You unbelieving and perverse generation. The thing is this, Jesus' purpose is not only to save us from sin. His purpose is also that his disciples grow to maturity, that his disciples become like him. And he had given them the authority earlier, if you remember. But there were these disciples, the nine of them who had followed him in and out through almost three years, not able to do that. Unbelieving and perverse, Jesus called them. Not trusting God, not believing that God is sovereign and is able to overcome all evil, focusing on the evil before them instead of on God, made them unable to drive out the evil spirit, made them important in their work. When Jesus, and so Jesus had to step in to do the work. When Jesus had rebuked and driven out that evil spirit, Luke tells us that the people were all amazed at the greatness of God. They weren't amazed at Jesus. They were amazed at the greatness of God. And Michael Card makes a remark in his commentary that caught my attention. Although it is Jesus who does the work, he's the one who rebukes, drives out the evil spirit, the people's attention were drawn to God. What is it about Jesus? What is it about how Jesus carried himself that pointed the people away from him and towards God instead? Because he was the one who was out front there, up front, doing the work. The thing is this, if we follow Jesus, we are not only called to be transformed into his likeness, but we are also called and given gifts to follow Jesus into ministry, into reaching out to others, into uh, connecting with others into service. God gave each one of us different gifts suitable for the work to which he calls us. And we have to be ready, like it or not, to face whatever circumstances came. Perhaps the disciples, I don't know what they thought, but with Jesus' specific instructions to go out into a mission, they were kind of ready for it. But after coming back, maybe they relaxed. They thought they would not have to face this kind of situation. But they did. We cannot pick and choose the situations that come to us. And you and I are called to trust that God 
is the one who gives us the authority and the power to be able to carry out his work. As we do the work, how we carry ourselves, how we act, the things we say and do must point people to God instead of drawing attention to ourselves. Too often, we have preachers, and it's a huge temptation, who act and speak in such ways that draw attention to themselves instead of God. The second thing about following Jesus, the first was we have to be ready for whatever comes. The second thing about following Jesus means opposition. The Samaritan village would not allow Jesus to go through it because he was headed to Jerusalem. The hostility and often sometimes outright enmity between the Jews and the Samaritans was long running. And so the Samaritans could not see that Jesus is the Messiah. All they saw was that he was heading to a place they considered enemy territory. And this was probably a different Samaritan village from that uh, woman's town. If you remember, Jesus encountered the Samaritan woman in the fourth chapter of John. And that whole town welcomed him. And they recognized him as the Messiah, but this particular village did not. All they saw was that his intention was to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. The disciples were indignant, righteous anger, they said, especially James and John. How could they not receive Jesus? He is God's Messiah. Once again, if we look back at the early part of chapter 9, Jesus did give them instructions how to deal with those who would not welcome them. If people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave their town as a testimony against them. Full stop. Nothing more. Shake the dust off your feet. The brothers James and John, very righteously indignant, completely forgot those instructions and asked Jesus, let's call down fire from heaven to burn this village. Jesus did not rebuke the village. Jesus just went off on his way, but he rebuked his disciples. They had still not caught Jesus' vision. They had still not caught God's mission for Jesus. They still had some way to go. Jesus had not come to judge or condemn, not at this time, but he had come to save. And so, Jesus went from that village to another village. 
those who would follow Jesus must not be surprised or shocked when we are faced with opposition and hostility. And what has happened in Jakarta is a very good example. Jesus warned his disciples in his final conversation with them. If we read the second part or the second half of John chapter 15, that if the world hates them, it is because the world hated Jesus first. If the world is hostile to Jesus' followers, it's because the world was hostile to Jesus first. You and I live in this world, but it is a world that is opposed to God and the things of God. And you and I must not be unaware of it. We are called God's sheep. Huh? We are called God's flock and sheep. But we are not to be dumb sheep. We are called to be innocent as doves, but wise as serpents. And so we are called to trust that God is at work and are turning hearts to Him. And you and I are called to join Him in this work. The values of the kingdom of God, in case you have not known it by now, are very different from the values of the world. But because we are born into this world, we grow up, we live in this world, the ways of the world in many instances are very deeply ingrained in us. The ways of thinking of this world are very much part of us. And that's why we need God to do His work of change and transformation and turning us around in us. The disciples were no different. And so they were arguing about who was the greatest among themselves. And their definition of greatest was according to the world. Luke doesn't tell us exactly the content of their argument, but perhaps, and I'm speculating here, they were talking about, you know, that mission trip, uh, who cast out the most demons and who entered the kingdom of God through their preaching and who had the most people, what they did, who did the best job, and so on. And maybe even the three who had gone up to the mountain with Jesus were telling them, we were there, we saw, you guys didn't. Unsaid, but it would have been implied. And maybe they were questioning and analysing why the other nine could not drive out the evil spirit. Who knows? Whatever it was, it was still about who was better than the others. But that's not how it is with Jesus and the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, the way of the world is reversed. In the words of some of the writers, the way up is to go down. In the time of Jesus, a child was the most powerless and irrelevant person. Nobody had any need for a child. 
a child did not have the same rights as an adult. Only when the child grew up was he or she given the rights. And even then, if you were a woman, the rights were again slightly different. The father or the head of the house could do as he pleased with the child. And the child had no choice but to trust the father or the head of the house to provide for all his or her needs and to trust that the father or the head of the house would do good by her or him. It is those who are powerless who will turn to God and put their trust in him, not those who feel powerful or think they have it all together. Henry Nouwen called this uh, being a child downward mobility. We all know upward mobility. Uh, that's what we work towards in our career, climbing the corporate ladder, uh, getting first in our exams. I remember bringing back my report card and it's always, what position did you get? But Henry Nouwen says, in God's kingdom, it is downward mobility and he speaks from experience. <clears throat> he achieved more than most people would have. He gained lectureships and tenure in Ivy League universities like Yale and Harvard and Notre Dame. He gave up all of that to go live and minister in the community of Lark Daybreak in Toronto, Canada. Daybreak is a community for disabled people. And to say that his life turned upside down is an understatement because Henry Nouwen, in his little book, in the name of Jesus for, about Christian leadership, says this, you know, all his vast experience did not help. They're, they're, they're sitting at the dinner table and uh, he passes a meat to one of the assistants and one of the disabled persons said, no, don't pass him meat. He's Presbyterian, he doesn't eat meat. Uh, Presbyterians eat meat, by the way. And so, his experience had no help. The books he, 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 he wrote, the articles he uh, wrote, and the lessons he taught, all that made no impact whatsoever on the residents in that community. They did not know how to appreciate it. But it was in that community of broken, wounded, disabled people that Henry Nouwen found peace, that he felt a coming home, as it were. And this is what he says, this is what he writes, the society in which we live suggests in countless ways that the way to go is up. Making it to the top, entering the limelight, breaking the record, that's what draws attention, gets us on the front page of the newspaper and offers us the rewards of money and fame. 
The way of Jesus is radically different. It is the way not of upward mobility, but of downward mobility. It is going to the bottom, staying behind the sets and choosing the last place. Why is the way of Jesus worth choosing? Because it is the way to the kingdom, the way Jesus took, and the way that brings everlasting life. You can find this quote. It's from one of his books, but you can find it on his website. If you type Henry Nouwen, Henry Nouwen Society, I think, is, is that uh, website. And you can find this there. The way down is the way to the kingdom. That's the way Jesus chose. He went down, and that way ended in the cross. But it is the way then that leads into everlasting life. The world tells us, and this can be very deeply ingrained in us, in the coming week, take a look at yourself. Be aware of your own emotional responses to the things that come at us. And the world tells us this, that the way to go is to climb up the ladder to become great, to be competitive and to fight tooth and nail for your place. And it comes up. How many of us have gritted our teeth even if we don't shake our fists or yell when a car cuts in front of us? Look out for number one because nobody will look out for you. That's the narrative the world tells us and it, it plays over and over again and it gets ingrained. And that's why the disciples stopped that man from driving out demons in Jesus' name. Interesting, isn't it? They could not do it. This man was doing it and they said, you better stop. Because they were not, he was not part of their group, us against them. That's the way of the world. But that's not how Jesus' way is. Those who are considered great in the kingdom of God are those who trust God in humility. They are those who embrace the foolishness of the gospel, as it were, as Michael Card puts it, and take on Jesus' yoke instead of going it alone and being independent. And you know, uh, who are the heroes today? The Lone Ranger is not quite the hero anymore. Like we don't hear of him as often uh, as some of us may remember. But even the Lone Ranger had Tonto beside him. Huh? But that individual rugged guy, Bear Grylls going it alone in the wilds, those are the heroes of today. But that's not where Jesus is taking us. Jesus is taking us into community. Jesus is taking us into dependence on God and interdependence on each other. We need each other because there is a cost to bear. And very often, we need people to walk alongside us, 
even if we have to bear the cost ourselves, but we need people alongside us to encourage us, and so we encourage each other. Last week, Reverend Hua Jin preached, and one of the passages, a part of that passage that he preached from was about taking up our cross daily and following Jesus. And that is the cross, uh, that is the cost of discipleship, our lives. Taking up one's cross does not mean only suffering or taking up one's responsibilities, but it really means dying. Dying to self, dying to our cherished hopes and dreams in order to receive life and hope from God. In order to step through to become a new creation in Christ and receive that new eternal life that God has for us. That's what taking up the cross means. You know, I've had conversations with friends and we've talked about ministry and getting into ministry and different types of ministry and I'm afraid sometimes, and we realise this as we, as we look at uh, people wanting to do ministry that very often, uh, and, and we can see that when people come into wanting to do something, very gung-ho, but more often than not, there is a certain glamour in their minds when they look at ministry. I'm not saying it applies across the board, but there are people who come into ministry because from a distance, they look at it and, wow, it's glamorous. But it is not. And we miss the whole point of discipleship and following Jesus if we think that is it. Following Jesus involves sacrifice. And Jesus makes it very, very clear in this last section of the text that was read to us today. Three people <clears throat> encounter Jesus. One offers to follow Jesus. The other two, Jesus calls them, and we have their responses. To the one who says he wanted to follow Jesus, Jesus tells him very bluntly that it will not be a comfortable place. There was once, I had to run a baptism and membership class for someone. Uh, and a little slow in responding to the person. And so the person grumbled to some other church members, not this church. Uh, People want to become members, so not interested. Ah. Ouch. But you know what? What I realized was that this person did not understand what it meant to follow Jesus. And so this person who said, I will follow you wherever you go. I wonder if he understood what it meant when he said wherever. When we say things like wherever, however, very dangerous because it can cover everything. And so Jesus tells him very bluntly that this person would not only have no home and would face rejection, but that following Jesus meant going to the cross. There is no bypassing it 
If you and I say we are followers of Jesus, it leads us to the cross. Secondly, following Jesus must take precedence over everything else in our lives, even family. And it seems quite harsh for Jesus to tell the man not to bury his father. If we assume that the father is already dead and in their practice, burial happens within 24 hours, Jesus said, it is urgent. I cannot even spare you that 24 hours. Jesus needs to be central and he, need, he calls for our total loyalty. And I struggle with it because we speak of taking care of our families. Of course, we need to look at the whole uh, sweep of the Bible because in the, another book, it does say, he who doesn't take care of his family is not fit to lead the church kind of thing. But Jesus calls for total loyalty. There is time for family. And if we read uh, John and we go to the back, when Jesus is on the cross, he makes sure he takes the time, even in his suffering, that to, for his mother to be taken care of, if you remember that. But Jesus has to be central in our lives. Thirdly, when we follow Jesus, we cannot look back on our own lives. The third person wanted to go back and say goodbye. You know, it's interesting, in the Old Testament, you look at Elisha, when Elijah calls him and he says, let me go back and say goodbye to my family, and Elijah gives him that grace to do that. And it would seem utterly reasonable but the thing is this, Israel had a history of looking back that pulled them away from God. The kings went back to Egypt to form alliances with Egypt that pulled them away from God. The Israelites, even in the wilderness, looked back to Egypt and wanted the food and life back then Egypt even when it meant bondage, when they were confronted with the hardship of the desert. Even if the desert meant life with God, they hankered to go back to Egypt. Lot's wife looked back and look what happened to her. She became a pillar of salt. We tend to want to go back to what is familiar, even if it is not good for us. But following Jesus means moving on, not looking back at our old lives anymore. We need to be very clear about this, that there is a cost to following Jesus, and those who are committed to it are willing to make that sacrifice, must be willing to make that sacrifice. Today is Mother's Day, and I am reminded of mothers who are so committed to make sure that their children grow up right, that they make sacrifices. There have been mothers, and maybe some of you are here today, who have had to stand firm and say no to their children, even though it's so hard and to hear the children say, you don't love me, out of not understanding. 
because you want your children to grow up right. You are committed to your children and you're willing to make that sacrifice. Mothers who love unconditionally. And perhaps that comes practically the closest to God's unconditional love for us. Those who follow Jesus make sacrifices and those who follow Jesus' calling to begin what would become Trinity Methodist Church made sacrifices. We celebrate 60 years this year. Our theme is... Does anybody know our theme? You're smiling. We don't talk about it enough, huh? Inheriting a double portion of God's Spirit. This is based, if you want to know where it comes from, go home and read 2 Kings chapter 2. Elisha's response to Elijah, just before Elijah was being taken up from heaven, he asked Elisha, what would you want me to do for you? And so Elisha said, I want to inherit a double portion of your spirit. Elijah said, in not so many words, that's a hard thing you've asked and it's not up to me, but if you see me being taken up to heaven, then that's your answer, your yes answer. Because Elisha was to succeed Elijah as prophet to the nation of Israel, to take on that mantle of being prophet to the nation, and that's not an easy thing. And so he saw Elijah being taken up, and indeed he received that double portion and more. But that's a sermon for another day. You and I have been blessed by the pioneers of Trinity, people like Reverend Ku Cheng Ho, who saw the need for an English service in the Chinese church and started an English congregation. It was not all that welcome because Wesley was already there. And so they said, why don't you just go there? But you see, the people wanted to be with their families as well. And when the Japanese occupation took place, Reverend Ku went to seek permission for the church service to be held. And that was the only church given permission to have a church service. Japanese soldiers would come and observe what went on in that service. And that was a dangerous thing. If he said something they didn't like, a bullet or an arrest, that would have been that. But this was what he said at that time. If I have to die, I don't want to deny the power and authority of the name of Jesus, the name that is above all other names. He understood what it is, what it means to follow Jesus. Reverend Ku knew the cost of discipleship. And with those words, I believe he was willing to pay the price if it came to that. And this is the spirit of the legacy that has been handed down to us. 
And so my prayer is that as we celebrate 60 years, let's embrace this legacy. Let's pray that we may have that double portion of the Spirit in order that those who come after us may be doubly blessed, just as we are blessed by those who came before us. Let us pray. Lord God, our Father, you call us to follow Jesus, and it is not an easy road. Yet, through your grace, we are changed, our hearts are changed, so that we are able, made able to follow Jesus. We pray for more grace, that we may be completely loyal to you and to Jesus, that we may be faithful, that we may be willing to count and to pay the cost of following our Lord Jesus Christ. It is in his name we ask this and we pray. Amen. Let me invite us to respond with a hymn, Take Up Thy Cross, 415. Shall we rise? <coughs> been written 
When God calls a man or a woman, he bids them come and die. Go forth to live as those who are prepared to die. And so order our lives that when the time comes for us to be 